two scripture readings today, uh, the first of which will hopefully sound familiar as it has been kind of the guiding verse for our sermon series this summer. It's from John 15, verse 5, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. And our second scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. And this is John writing about a vision that he sees. So after this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is the uh, final sermon in our series for the summer. We've been looking at spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that we can uh, uh, practice in our lives that help us to grow closer to Christ, uh, help us to live into our authentic selves, um, help us to be aware of God's presence with us. And as we've been doing this over this course of these 10 weeks or so, um, we've looked at both uh, disciplines of engagement and disciplines of contemplation. So both inward disciplines and outward disciplines. This list is not exhaustive, um, but it does include both of these categories. And so the inner disciplines that we talked about and the way we talked about them, um, solitude, gratitude, prayer, Sabbath, fasting, these are things that we practice on our own oftentimes uh, and it's about our inner life with God. And then the next five, engaging scripture in community, um, generosity, hospitality, 
service and today is celebration. These are outward disciplines that we express um, and, uh, and grow because we use them in community. So that's what we've been doing. And if you're interested in looking back on any of these messages over the course of the summer, the transcripts are available online and you can download all of them if you're interested. A friend of mine uh, used to tell the story of a jet fighter pilot um, who every day for many, many years, he would go to the flight simulator and train for four hours a day. This happened even after he mastered the art of flying fighter jets. He was the best among his colleagues. And even on his day off, he would go to the flight simulator to continue to train. He was hoping, uh, well, his friend was hoping to go fishing with him on a Saturday morning. And uh, the pilot uh, turned down the the invitation to go to the flight simulator and the friend said how why would you do this why would you not come fishing with me you're already the best uh, you don't need to go on your day off and the pilot said I go because in a moment of crisis we do not rise to the occasion we default to our training in a moment of crisis, we do not rise to the occasion, we default to our training. So I need to make sure that my training is, is on par. The guy seems a little intense, if you ask me. But, but the principle applies to so many things in our lives. It applies to athleticism in sports. It applies to music and art. It applies to performing surgery. It applies to crash landing a 747 on the Hudson River as Captain Sully did. Um, so many things, including our spiritual lives. Uh, we do not rise to the occasion when crisis hits to become something that we are not, to develop something that we do not have. No, when crisis hits, we default to our training. And in the spiritual life, we are meant to train ourselves, as Paul says, train yourselves for righteousness. And this is essentially a roadmap or a curriculum or a training program for growing in Christ so that when the crises of life hit, we will have default to our training and we will know how to respond in the way of Jesus Christ. So today we come to the final discipline uh, that we've been talking about throughout the summer and that is the practice of celebration. Celebration. I just want to note that, um, that Pastor Bree was, was wise and she organized this series to put celebration at the conclusion of the series because this is how our story concludes as people of the book, as Christians. It concludes with celebration. We'll get to that in a minute. It's also why I think Richard Foster concluded his book on the spiritual disciplines with the discipline of celebration. Did you know that in the Bible we're actually commanded to celebrate? We're commanded to celebrate in the Bible. Celebration has always been a means uh, to remember God's provision. And this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. 
After God had, had spared his people from imminent destruction and liberated them out of the hands of slavery, out of Pharaoh, brought them into Egypt, he specifically instructed them to commemorate his faithfulness through an annual celebration. And this is the first of seven, and we'll get to those in a second. But here we find the first instructions for the Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God sparing his people. And the, this day shall be then a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. In Jewish life today, there are nine annual festivals. For the Jewish people, there's a weekly festival, which Bree preached about, known as Sabbath. And there's uh, seven of these are listed in Leviticus 23, so they're legal requirements. This is part of the law. You were, you were legally bound to celebrate these seven festivals. Then there's one that comes from uh, Esther, and there's one that comes later. So if we take a look at these, just briefly, just so that you know and get the sense of how how high of a value is partying for the people of God. Passover celebrates the deliverance from Egypt, which we just read. Unleavened bread, the festival of unleavened bread, celebrates our need for spiritual cleansing and sanctification. Uh, the festival of Shavuot, or weeks, celebrates the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, as well as the grain harvest, and this is uh, during Pentecost. This, the uh, festival of first fruits celebrates the first harvest of crops and is one of three pilgrimage festivals. So three times they had to make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate that, their festival. And we know that. We read about that in the life of Jesus. You might have heard of the, the festival of Sukkot or, or booths or tabernacles. It celebrates the Israelites when, when they lived in little booths or little huts in the wilderness as God provided for them. The festival of trumpets, you might have heard of Rosh Hashanah or friends of yours who celebrate Rosh Hashanah. It celebrates the beginning of the new year and all that God has done in the past year. And there's also a, a time of repentance and letting go. And then the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, celebrates the atonement for the sins of Israel and we know all about that from Jesus. Now, those are the seven from Leviticus 23. The next one is Purim, and this comes out of the book of Esther, and it celebrates the deliverance of the Jews from extermination by the evil Haman. And then later came what you know as Hanukkah, or the celebration of lights, which celebrates the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people, they created these unique festivals and these traditions that were shaped around God's commandments to remember. And these festivals are to be celebrated for the, before the Lord in a spirit, sometimes a week long, of dancing and music and celebration and processions and all of that. And this is where we as Christians come to understand that we have a call 
to celebrate. This is where we get our foundation that, you know, a lot of people think that Christians are, are really boring and to become a Christian you have to be really bored and miserable all the time, you know, and you think about the ascetics and the wilderness and, and all of that and, and, uh, that and, and yet the Bible points us to a life of great celebration. Celebration wasn't only something that was a planned event uh, in the life of Israel, but also a spontaneous expression of joy that comes from faith. We see it with, um, with Miriam uh, when she's dancing with her tambourine. Or Deborah, who sings and makes melody to the Lord. Or David, when they, when they brought the ark back to Jerusalem, he burst out into, uh, he leapt and danced before the Lord. And of course, he, how many psalms of praise did David, David write? This joy was expressed in those, including Psalm 100, which we looked at this morning. Every psalm of praise in the Bible asserts that God is the source of, of our joy. The experience of joy in the Psalter is grounded in this work and provision of God and God's faithful generosity. And interestingly, all throughout the Psalter, all creation is celebrating the goodness of God. All creation, all the time, is given glory and celebrating the goodness of God. The question is whether we want to enter into what is already happening in all of creation? Or do we want to live our lives as though God does not exist? Because the trees are praising God just by their existence. And so we're invited into this celebration. Thomas Merton says that in praising God with the words of the Psalms, we can come to know him better. Coming to know him better, we come to love him better. Loving him better, we find our happiness in him. Then we get to the Gospels. So that's Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. We get to the Gospels and we see how Jesus embodies this tradition in his own life. It begins even before his awareness at his birth when the angels, they bust out. And there's this great celebration around the birth of Jesus, even in the you know, humble abode where he had to be born in a stable. And Luke says, the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. Why? There's a reason to celebrate. Why? Because to you this day is born in the city of David, Christ the Savior. And then during his ministry, he said something like this to the disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I, I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus came to bring us joy and to complete our joy. So celebration is at the heart of the way of Jesus Christ. You might remember when the prodigal son returns home. What does the father do? He throws a great celebration with music and dancing, an incredible party. And at the end of the parable, to be lost is to refuse to enter God's party. To be lost is to refuse to celebrate. Now everyone loves to celebrate. We love it, right? When the moment calls for it. Birthday parties, graduations, weddings, promotions, baptisms. We love to celebrate when the moment calls for it. When we're genuinely and sincerely excited. 
But celebration in the Bible is unique in that it calls us to celebrate even when the moment doesn't seem to call for it. When you think about celebration as a command or as a discipline or a spiritual practice, it seems like what you're asking me to do is to be fake. Like, what if I don't feel very celebratory? You're asking me to be inauthentic, to celebrate when I don't feel like celebrating. And aren't then we just pretending to live in a world where evil doesn't exist and where bad things don't happen? Um, can you really preach a sermon about the discipline of celebration to the residents of Lahaina, for instance? It strikes me that this is a question that the recipients of John's letter, known as the book of Revelation, were asking in the first century. How could we possibly celebrate amid all of this? It's been said that when it comes to the book of Revelation, you've heard of the book of Revelation, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who love the book of Revelation, and there are those who are afraid of those who love the book of Revelation. <laughs> I love the book of Revelation, but not because I find it to be scary or not in any scary way. I love the book of Revelation because I've found it to be a source of comfort and hope in a world where evil is very real and very present. Revelation takes us through a series of horrific images that uh, depict the hardest of times with incredible persecution, with tribulation, with bloody battles, unimaginable suffering. It's very, very important as you read the book of Revelation to remember that these were already the conditions of life in the first century in the Roman Empire that the first Christians were experiencing. Um, and John wrote down their experience using apocalyptic language in a vision. The early Christians were experiencing incredible persecution, tribulation, and martyrdom. The emperors, Nero, Vespasian, Domitian, any one of them could compete for the title Antichrist that the book of Revelation refers to. All of the heartache that John and his church witnessed flew in the face of their great hope that Jesus would soon return and establish his new kingdom on earth. Oh, that wonderful kingdom of heaven come to earth. Jesus had nurtured a passion in his followers for that kingdom, prepared them for that kingdom to come. He heaped on them parable after parable, trying to describe it. He said the kingdom is like a treasure that's found. It's like a lost son that's returned home. It's like a great feast where only the unworthy are welcome. The kingdom is like falling in love only with your enemy. It had been over a generation since Christ had planted those dreams in their hearts and then left, promising to come back to make these dreams come true. Where was he? Where is this kingdom he promised? Celebrate? I don't think so. And it's into that context that John writes this letter known as the book of Revelation. And, and, and this word in this letter is a word of judgment against evil and it's a word of hope in Jesus Christ. He offers a reason to celebrate when the situation doesn't seem to call for it.
Today's text is a favorite for funerals and for All Saints Day because it speaks of the multi-ethnic character of God and the quality of God's people coming from all tribes and, and nations and praising God together. It's a reverse, the completion of the reversal of Babel that then began at Pentecost and is now completed. And they are standing before the throne of God, sheltered by God's tabernacling presence. The scene divides into two sections, so there's the vision, and then there's the interpretation of that vision. And worship and praise are central in this passage in, uh, of God's people. He has this vision of white-robed multitudes singing and waving palm branches, palm branches. Their courageous hymns were actually not just, you know, tame worship hymns, they were, they were counter-imperial protests. They said that salvation, blessing, glory, and honor, and power belong not to Caesar, which was the phrase that you were, you know, required to rehearse in the Roman Empire, but to Jesus, all blessing or honor, glory, and power be not to Caesar, but to our God. And both John's revelation and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, of course, mention this uh, palm branches. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Leviticus 23 in one of their festivals. On the first day, you shall take the fruit of majestic trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a festival to the Lord seven days in the year and the seventh month as a statute throughout your generations. This was to remember and celebrate the Exodus. But what John is saying, that in the end, that there is a new Exodus taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's not, an, it's not a liberation out of Egypt, but it's taking place in the human heart and in the heart of the Roman Empire. And the interpretation then of this vision is the second part of the passage where those who have come out of the great ordeal, the great tribulation, will find themselves protected and sheltered by God. Well, what's the great tribulation? It's what the first century Christians were experiencing in Rome. They were experiencing tribulation and martyrdom and those who will uphold their faith even through martyrdom will be preserved in the end. Those who refuse to participate in the Roman imperial system and uphold their faith even in the face of death will be preserved. And this multicultural multitude washes their robes in the lamb's blood to make them white. I don't know how red turns anything white, uh, but that's apocalyptic literature for you. It's symbolism to symbolize the forgiveness of sins. They've come through the great tribulation as servants of God, cleansed. And God, who like a shepherd tenderly cares for his people. And it says, for this reason they are before the throne of God and they worship him day and night. The one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. The word shelter comes from the Greek word skenose, and it invokes tabernacling imagery. And so the sense of God's radiant presence as a dwelling, as a canopy or a tabernacle over us. 
In in Revelation, there are hundreds of references, allusions to Isaiah 49, which is the call to return home from exile. God's people will not hunger or thirst on their journey through their wilderness. Well, friends, we are find ourselves in a wilderness. We are in exile again as we wait from when Christ came to when Christ shall return and make it complete. What it means is that if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and trust him with your life, that the worst thing is not the last thing. Our suffering isn't the end. Death doesn't have the final word. There is hope, and hope breeds joy. And celebration is the expression of the joyful hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, for Christians, it turns out that any time is an appropriate time to celebrate. So as a discipline, celebration becomes an act of resistance, an act of defiance, it's, it's laughing at the efforts of Satan. The battle is already won. I think about our brothers and sisters who live in Mathari, in the slum in, in Nairobi, and they gather for worship at Living Word Church, and when they gather there, they're packed to the walls, and the sound that comes out of them is loud, and the dancing and the joy, even as they are living in the slums, it's an act of defiance. It is worship as resistance. This is why um, celebrations are so crucial to our spiritual life. You know, so in this way, celebration as a discipline is not the natural expression of a present feeling, but it is the willful expression of a future hope. Celebration as discipline is not the natural expression of a present feeling, but the willful expression of a future hope. It's acting on principle. The very act of celebrating then anchors us in a deeper story one that precedes any of our hardship or pain. In fact, God's narrative goes even back further, uh, back to the garden when God formed us out of the dust and called us into loving relationship with each other and him. Continued when Jesus came, became flesh and assumed our sin and brokenness so that we would enjoy fellowship with the Trinity and it will culminate in a celebration, the wedding feast of Christ with his bride, the church. Church historian Craig Barnes uh, used to say that when you read church history, you discover that the people who did the most good for the present world were those who believed the most strongly in the world to come. This was true for the apostles who sought the conversion of the Roman Empire, the architects of the city of God who inspired society for a thousand years. It's true for the English pietists who uh, abolished the slave trade, for the African-American preacher who had a dream of a racially integrated society, for the nun in Calcutta who taught us how to give dignity to those who are dying. Where did they get their vision for life in this world? It came from what Jesus taught them about the world to come. Perhaps the most important benefit of celebration is that it, takes a, it frees us from taking ourselves too seriously. 
It, it's healing and, and refreshing to cultivate a wide appreciation for life. Celebration helps us to relax and to enjoy the good things of the earth. It also gives us perspective. When we have perspective, when we are freed from an inflated view of ourselves and our own importance, we are then also freed of a judgmental spirit towards others. Common joys can be shared without judgments. And celebration begets more celebration. Joy begets joy. Laughter begets laughter. If we're able to celebrate, not only on those special occasions, we realize that we have many occasions to be glad and to be thankful. So let us celebrate and be glad. Let us put a ring on our fingers and sandals on our feet. On our feet. On our feet. Let us rejoice because we were lost and by Jesus Christ we have been found. We were dead and alive again. And as such, there is always a time to rejoice. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for giving us reason to celebrate. Even as we find ourselves from time to time in lament, certainly celebration doesn't eliminate grief, sadness. But somehow in the mystery of the gospel, they're all present. They're all present. So help us find our hope even in the midst of our sorrow. Help us find joy even in the midst of pain. Help us to celebrate even when things around us may be sad. For we claim our future, the future you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.